Please note that this episode discusses gender violence that some people may find disturbing or triggering. Listener discretion is advised. The country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Hello and welcome to Talking Indonesia. I'm Anissa Beta from the School of Culture and Communication of the University of Melbourne. I'm your host for this week's episode. Images have always played an important role in Indonesia, not just in everyday life, but also in its ever-changing political landscape. Terms like pencitraan is commonly heard during election times. With social media dominating our lives, buzzers actively spin public imaginaries of social and political issues. Posters of Munir have been as iconic as the late human rights activist himself. How do we explain this? Talking to us this week about images and politics in Indonesia is Karen Stressler. Karen is a professor of anthropology at the City University of New York. Her work focuses on the social lives and political work of images, looking into relationship between visuality and political imaginaries. Karen published her book, Refracted Visions, Popular Photography and National Modernity in Java, in 2010, examining the making of Indonesian subjects, spaces, and temporalities in everyday photographic practices. Her second book, Demanding Images, Democracy, Mediation, and the Image Event in Indonesia, was published in 2020. The book investigates how public images affect the political field during a turbulent period of political upheaval and technological transformation. Hi, Karen. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode. Thanks, Anissa. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. You've worked on photographs, images, and the visual cultures of Indonesia for about more than two decades now. What made you first interested in studying Indonesia and its visual cultures? Well, I guess I'd say it's more of a convergence of interests than anything else. Um, I started graduate school in anthropology with an interest in media and how media was affecting culture. And I was really shocked to find how few tools we had in our sort of anthropological toolkit for thinking about visual communication compared with this very rich set of methodologies and theoretical tools for thinking about language and linguistic communication. And this was in the mid 1990s. And it just felt like this was a huge gap that we really needed to address as a discipline, given the importance of visual images in the contemporary world. So that kind of set me on the path um, to being interested in visual images in particular. And I was already, when I started graduate school, interested in Indonesia. I had spent a semester abroad uh, in college, um, actually in Bali, but I'd also traveled around other parts of Indonesia. And it just you know, I was just so taken with the complexity and richness of the place. And it just felt like um, a place I wanted to go back to, but not as a tourist or a visitor, but as someone who would really learn a great deal and, and engage um, in a deeper way. And of course, once I stumbled into anthropology and I realized that there was this really rich, you know, tradition of scholars working on Indonesia, that just kind of pulled it all together. 
So I wanted to do a project initially, the, the, the initial dissertation project that I proposed was um, something about the politics of memory in the context of a dictatorship, an authoritarian regime where history was really monopolized by the state and there was just an enormous amount of silencing. And I was interested in thinking about family photographs and personal photographs and what kinds of alternative histories and counter memories those artifacts might uh, sustain and, and might enable and, and in a context, right, where what was, there was so much silence and there was so much of a limit on what could actually be said about the past. But as I was preparing to go to Indonesia, um, literally on the day that, you know, demonstrations and so-called rioting broke out in Jakarta, I think it was May 14th, this day that I got the call from the Fulbright saying that I had gotten funding. And so there was this, this moment of like, well, I've got funding to do this project. But of course, a few days later, Suharto stepped down. What, what was the project without the dictatorship? So I arrived in Indonesia, you know, completely unmoored with no project. Everything was wide open. And so there was almost like, um, you know, it was almost a little mirror because, you know, Indonesia too was in this state of being wide open and with a lot of questions about who, who are we? Who are we going to be now that the dictatorship is over? And so I kind of didn't know what to do, but I knew I was interested in photography. So I just set out to pursue photography in all of its habitats and try to understand it and think about it. And what gradually emerged from that ethnographic process was a study of the role of photography in the making of Indonesia and Indonesian subjects. And so the question of memory and, and history that was, was my original interest remained part of that project, but it kind of got subsumed within something a lot broader. And so that's really where my, my first book, um, which came out of my dissertation, Refracted Visions, came from. You mentioned family photographs just now, mm -hmm. and you talk about authoritarianism. Politics in Indonesia is often discussed through the lens of statistics, numbers, predictions, and so on. But you've been interested for so long in how photography's images can be very influential to our understanding of the Indonesian subject and the political. Could you explain to us a bit more about that? Yes, sure. So, I mean, one of the things in that, in that first project that I just uh, mentioned, what I became interested in was the way that photography offered people a way to participate in some of the broader historical and ideological currents that were going on around them by performing for the camera or by taking photographs or even by uh, participating in sort of rituals of citizenship like having an ID photo taken. I found that that personal images were a site where people both absorbed and in their own ways, transformed dominant ideologies of nation, of development, of modernity, and so on. And so it was political in that broader sense of being about political subjects and about what it is that people think of when they imagine themselves as part of a political community. So being trained as an anthropologist, 
you know, what I'm interested in are the textures of everyday life and the ways that ordinary people experience and make sense of the world around them. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm interested in the political, not so much in the sense of models of political systems or even uh, particularly electoral politics and party politics, but in a, in a broader sense of how is power distributed and how do people understand their position within a political structure and how do they imagine what possibilities for change exist and how do they contest the existing order. So that's the way in which I'm interested in politics. And the premise of my recent book, Demanding Images, is that the conduct of politics is increasingly occurring on the terrain of images and that this isn't just a matter of people consuming images or of images being presented to people but of ordinary people practicing citizenship, Mm. expressing their political aspirations and their disappointments through making, circulating, repurposing, altering, playing with, and commenting on images. So part of what I'm trying to get at is that when we talk about something like political visibility, we're not just being metaphorical that actually what comes to matter politically and how it comes to matter is often crucially shaped by what people see and by actual concrete images. So images play a role in shaping the political terrain. They determine what is seen and how and by whom. And this is very crucial and increasingly so in our contemporary media world. That's that's a great segue to my next question on the concept that you proposed. One of the key ideas that you propose in your new book is image event, and you define it as a political process set in motion when a specific image or set of images erupts onto and intervenes in a social field. And one of the examples that you use in the book is the portrait of Munir and the posters that have been around in many parts of Indonesia. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you explain the workings of what you call image event in, in that example of Munir? Well, it, when I'm talking about image events, partly what I'm trying to do is shift our way of thinking about images, which we've been sort of conditioned to think of images as representations or reflections on things that are happening elsewhere outside of the image, right? Mm -hmm. So images represent X. And what I'm trying to get us to think about is how images are actually in themselves political happenings. And the Munir images that you mentioned, unlike some of the other image events that I talk about in the book, are really self-conscious efforts on the part of activists and artists to create an image event, to put Munir into the public eye and to insist on his presence in the face of erasure and impunity. So particularly when formal procedures and laws are not working to bring about justice, right? one of the recourses that people have is to the public field of vision. And this becomes an important arena for political action. One of the Munir images that I, that I talk about quite a bit, um, was designed by a street artist named Anti-Tank, who was active in Jogjakarta. And he paired a very simple stylized image of Munir's face with a simple slogan, Menolat Lupa, 
refuse to forget. And that same slogan is used by many, many people, uh, many images of Munir. But the story behind this image is interesting because Anti-Tank originally had paired it with a different slogan. And I don't remember the exact slogan, but it was something like, those who are in the right will be killed. And he decided that that language was too strident. It was too much the activist language. It was too confrontational. And he was concerned that it would alienate the ordinary person who would encounter this image as they walked down the street. He wanted to find a language and an imagery that was memorable and simple and what would also um, speak to people in such a way that they would feel that it was their own sentiment. This was very important to him as he recounted to me in, in my interviews with him. And he also, another important thing about this image is that he made it available on his website as a file and he encouraged people to download it and create their own posters and put them up wherever they were. And so part of the idea was to engage people as participants, right? Not just as passive receivers of his images, but as people who took part in disseminating them and in putting Munir into people's line of vision. And so I think this is an example, a very good example of someone who is a kind of expert in the art of the image event, right? These are people, and there are many other artists who who are experts at creating viral images that can spread and that can, through that process, ideally engage people in political action and make people feel that they are participating in a public dialogue. There are many other image events that are more spontaneous um, and sort of unintended. One example would be the controversy around Pink Swing Park, which was an artwork by Aguswage that I talk about in chapter four of the book, which became a kind of flashpoint in debates about pornography and the pornography law. When I say unintended, it was unintended on the part of the artist, but it was very consciously capitalized on by the FPE, the, the Islamic Defenders Front, to create an image event. So image events, whether spontaneous or intended, are moments of coalescence. They provide a kind of concrete ground for debates over political questions that are often very slippery and inchoate, right? What what does it mean to have a democracy? What does it mean to have a public sphere that is open? And what are the dangers and limits of that? What does it mean to have transparency? Or in the case of Munir, right? What what are the ideals of reformacy and how have those ideals been deferred or failed by the existing order? So, you know, the, the image of Munir, of course, took on different meanings in different moments and became much more than just about his murder and the lack of Uh, real political accountability for what happened to him. He became a sign of reformasi more generally and of the failure of the promises of reformasi. And I talk about how those images played out in a particular moment in Yogyakarta where there was an extrajudicial killing, right? And so they came to stand for something larger in their relation to events that were going on. So that's another aspect of the image event is that the image itself is continually transforming and taking on new uh, meanings in the moment and environment that it's in. 
In the book, you have many other examples, and you mentioned an, a couple just now. You also discussed the unresolved cases of rapes of Chinese Indonesian women in 1998, and you focus on the public debates about photographic evidence, authenticity, and this obsession that you said just now with transparency after reformasi. Could you share with us about that? Sure. I mean, the debates about the rapes of ethnic Chinese Indonesian women, you know, and sort of the question of was there proof that those rapes had occurred, which kind of um, consumed the press for several months in the fall of 1998 and into the the early months of 1999. Really, I, I think about it as a kind of anti-image event or an image event in absentia, because part of the problem was that there weren't images in a in a moment when there was tremendous demand for images. And so I think of the debate about the rapes as one of the early sort of warning signs of the limits of transparency as a political ideal. You know, during Reformasi, there was kind of the set of oppositions, right, between what was supposed to be Reformasi and the New Order regime. So transparency was going to replace the obscurity and darkness of terror, truths that were grounded in evidence and proof would replace lies and manipulation. Things would be out in the open instead of covered up. Authenticity would replace duplicity. People would have access to participate in history and in other political processes instead of the state monopolizing political and historical narratives. Um, so there was this kind of imaginary around these ideas. And I've argued in my work that during the Reformasi movement and in the months immediately after it, journalistic images kind of took on this emblematic status as material signs of these Reformasi ideals, right? Photographs were the material embodiment of transparency, accountability, truth, access, and so on. And so at the very same time that these debates about the rapes were taking place, there were books being published and photo exhibits being put on and calendars being made that were all full of images of Reformasi demonstrations, right? That sort of celebrated the power of photography to bring abuses and violence to light, to affect public opinion and to bring about change. And so in that context, images really were the currency of political recognition. So what happens when there are no images of a particular kind of violence? And even more importantly, what happens to the demand for transparency when the victims refuse to come forward to testify publicly and refuse to allow themselves to circulate publicly in the form of images, which is what happened, right? The Rape victims and those who were advocating for them were themselves accused of a lack of transparency, right? So the language and the discourse of transparency got turned against them for their refusal to come forward. They became the ones who were spreading rumors, right? And were spreading terror and were manipulating and lying, right? And so I argue, you know, in that chapter that when it came to sexual violence, the idea of visibility in that sense of transparency, 
um, was very hard to disentangle from a kind of pornographic visibility, right? From being exposed to a, a very prurient gaze that exploited sexual violence as entertainment. And that in particular for a very precariously positioned ethnic minority, like ethnic Chinese women, the possibility of visibility was also felt as a threat, right? Threat of surveillance, threat of being visible to a state that does not have an interest in protecting you and threat of more violence and harm. So that this ideal of exposure and transparency was not something that women who had been raped would embrace. It was something that they perceived as a threat, very understandably. So this one case, I think, really um, crystallized and foreshadowed a lot of the disillusionment that was going to come in subsequent years with what I call in the book, the dream of transparency. Now that we look at the second decade ending in Indonesia of after reformasi, moving on to the third, mm. and with social media being very important for everyone, it seems, what do you think have been the consequences of social media's abundant and endless supply of images? to Indonesia's political situation? Well, I think what's happened in Indonesia is very similar to what's happened in the United States and elsewhere. Mm. Um, you know, when I first started doing work on images in Indonesia, my earlier project, you know, people would always say, well, what's different about Indonesia and photography? And I would have to say, well, it's different and it's not different, right? I mm. mean, there are, there are things that... Um, when you're talking about a global technology that are shared um, across very different specific places, even though, of course, they are inflected by particular histories and political contexts. So, you know, I think that what's happened in Indonesia is a phenomenon that we can recognize in many other places. And this has to do with the fact that images are effective and they are effective because they are affective. They draw attention and they arouse response. They are compelling. And in a media ecology in which attention is a valuable commodity and in which you know both fortunes and reputations are made on clicks and likes, there is a demand for ever more images and for ever more arousing or provocative images. So this undoubtedly has contributed to the kind of political polarization that we've seen in Indonesia and in other places, and to the ways that people come to sort of inhabit these echo chambers um, where they, they really seem to, to be existing in different realities based on the networks that they are part of and the images that they are exposed to. So I think that's that's kind of the the ugly side of it. On the other hand, I think what we've seen and certainly what I have witnessed in studying some of this in Indonesia is just an incredible amount of creativity and people, you know, using their platforms to engage in political commentary and political action and speech, you know, for better or for worse. I don't I don't want to, um, you know, I don't think that we should be naively romanticizing about that. I think we see ample ways in which that can be very uh, dangerous and destructive. But at the same time, I don't want to discount the, the way that people are 
active and participating in certain ways that maybe were were not so available at other moments. Mm. The artists that you've mentioned just now, Auntie Tank and Agusuwage and many others, what roles do photographers and artists play in the in Indonesia's current political landscape? Well, I think that art has been a kind of breeding ground for dissent and for strategies of expressing dissent in very creative and, you know, during the dictatorship, at least necessarily kind of um, oblique and symbolic ways for a very long time. So it's not really a surprise that there's a tremendous amount of kind of fertility within the art world in Indonesia for these kinds of you know new platforms for circulating images. Um, and so it doesn't, it, I don't think there's any surprise that artists play a role in creating image events or uh, sort of galvanizing people through images. And I think that, you know, as I said before, photography has had a very particular status within um, the reform movement. But what I would say is that while the role of professional artists and photographers remains significant, what's really changed is that the kind of expertise in making images is something that's become far more widespread and that you don't have to be an artist or a professional photographer to be making images or putting images into circulation or manipulating or altering images. Um, And what we see is that more and more ordinary people are playing that role that was maybe more reserved for a, a more narrow band of elite and expert people in the past. I'll move on now to the end, the end of your book, the way you close the book. So your discussion of politicians during election periods in the book reminds me of the term pencitraan, mm-hmm. a common term Indonesians would use to make sense of the politicians' promises and image making. What do you make of the term? Well, I think that uh, pencitraan speaks to the fact that in a more democratic regime, more democratic political system, you need to persuade people, Mm -hmm. right? At least that's part of the political process. We know, of course, that um, there are lots of other things that uh, play a role in determining who gets elected that are not just about uh, winning over your, your constituents, right? But it certainly is relevant in a way that it was not, was much less so uh, under the dictatorship, right? That you need to, to present yourself as appealing, right? So Panchitran, you know, refers to this image management, as I understand it, right? It refers to the work that goes into appearances, into presenting the candidate as a particular kind of candidate with particular values and particular commitments and a particular style, right? And these become, of course, more and more important as the politician's presence is mediated through the kinds of media, you know, whether print or electronic or social media, right, that people are consuming where there is that demand for images, right? So the importance of managing images has become much greater in the current media environment and political moment, right? 
But the idea of Panchitran is on the one hand, right, this desire to kind of stabilize and fix a, an image of the candidate that is positive and that is under the control of the candidates, you know, uh, of his campaign, right, or her campaign. But, but of course, the term is also used as a critique, right, to, to point to inauthenticity and to suggest that images, you know, conceal and that they're, that the public presentation is not reliably, you know, representative of the authentic political agenda or political self of the candidate. So what I would say is that Pinchitran takes place within a much broader context in which image management has become more important as a political strategy, but is also much more difficult to maintain, to fix and to stabilize that image, right? In a context where people are so savvy and so actively involved in making images and repurposing images and commenting on images, right? Often in very humorous ways. So the goal of Panchitran is continually sort of undermined by image events, right? And dynamic processes that, that turn Panchitran on its head, that undermine its capacity to, to present a stable image. An example might be like something that the anthropologist Carla Jones writes about, right? Women who are accused of corruption, who show up in court wearing Islamic dress, and they're trying to use the cloak of piety and create the appearance of innocence through this Islamic garb that they're wearing. But that attempt to manage their appearance is continually undermined because it invites a cascade of satirical memes and commentaries that figuratively unmask them as frauds and turn those cultivated appearances into further signs of corruption. So the meme is the kind of antidote to the politics of Panchitraan. And just to extend that uh, question, and this is my last question to you, we're seeing an increasing role of buzzers on social media. Mm-hmm. manipulating not just images, but also trying to, it seems, manage public discourse on social and political issues. But we also, as you said, see netizens responding back critically, right, with memes, as you said. And with the intensifying and, you know, the 2024 elections already looming now, how should we think about the role of images and the future of politics in Indonesia? Well, it's a great question. And I I have to be honest and say that I have not been following the political scene as closely as I was when I was working on the book. Um, I've been working on other research projects, so I'm I'm a little um, you know I'm a little hesitant to speak directly to what's happening right now in the lead up to the 2024 election. But I think what your question is pointing to is that there's increasing savvy and and cynical sort of manipulation of the power of social media to shape opinion and political realities. But at the same time, you know, as the tools of manipulating that power increase, so too does the ability to sniff out and contest those manipulations become more sophisticated and more effective. So there's really a kind of a game of cat and mouse, right? Uh, where people are trying to control this this uh, this tool for political ends, and people who are trying to kind of speak back and contest that. 
And one thing that I, I can, I guess the only thing I can really say, I don't, I don't know where it's leading, but I acquired in the course of my research just an incredible appreciation for Indonesians' ability to use humor and playful critique to sort of poke holes in authoritative positions and to challenge the pretenses of the powerful. And I imagine that this kind of game of cat and mouse is going to be ongoing and it's going to intensify. And there's a lot to be pessimistic about that, um, the use of buzzers and other kinds of you know, devices for uh, manipulating opinion. But I do have a lot of faith in the creative and critical powers of ordinary people, and many of whom, you know, are a lot more funny than uh, than the people who are trying to control things. And I don't think we should ever underestimate the power of humor. That is such an amazing note to end the conversation. Thank you so much, Karen. Thank you, Anissa. This was really fun. I appreciate it. That was my talk with Karen Stressler a professor of anthropology at the City University of New York. Karen recently published her book, Demanding Images, Democracy, Mediation, and the Image Event in Indonesia in 2020 with Duke University Press. Her first book, Refracted Visions, published in 2010, was awarded the Gregory Bateson Prize for Cultural Anthropology, the Harry J. Bender Prize for Southeast Asian Studies, and the John Collier Prize for Visual Anthropology. Talking Indonesia returns on the 18th of November with my co-host, Dr. Dave McRae. You can find Talking Indonesia at Indonesia at Melbourne blog and wherever you get your podcasts. This has been the Talking Indonesia podcast with me, Anissa Beta. Bye for now. Bye.